The grass withers and the flowers fall, but this is God's word and it is eternal and it abides forever. And so let us give our full and undivided attention to the reading of our God's word. Bless the Lord, O my soul. O Lord, my God, you are very great. You are clothed with splendor and majesty, covering yourself with light as with a garment, stretching out the heavens like a tent. He lays the beams of his chambers on the waters. He makes the clouds his chariot. He rides on the wings of the wind. He makes his messenger's winds, his ministers, a flaming fire. He set the earth on its foundation so that it should never be moved. You covered it with the deep as with a garment the water stood above the mountains. At your rebuke they fled. At the sound of your thunder they took to flight. The mountains rose, the valleys sank down to the place that you appointed for them. You set a boundary that they may not pass so that they might not again cover the earth. You make springs gush forth in the valleys. They flow between the hills. They give drink to every beast of the field. The wild donkeys quench their thirst. Beside them the birds of the heavens dwell. They sing among the branches. From your lofty abode you water the mountains. The earth is satisfied with the fruit of your work. You cause the grass to grow for the livestock and plants for man to cultivate that he may bring forth food from the earth and wine to gladden the heart of man, oil to make his face shine, and bread to strengthen man's heart. The trees of the Lord are watered abundantly, the cedars of Lebanon that he planted. In them the birds build their nests. The stork has her home in the fir trees. The high mountains are for the wild goats. The rocks are a refuge for the rock badgers. He made the moon to mark the seasons, the sun to know it's time for setting. You made darkness and it is night, when all the beasts of the forest creep about. The young lion roars for their prey, seeking their food from God. When the sun rises, they steal away and lie down in their dens. Man goes out for his work and to his labor until the evening. O Lord, how manifold are your works. In wisdom you have made them all. The earth is full of your creatures. Here is the sea, great and wide, which teems with, living, uh, with creatures innumerable, living things both small and great. There go the ships and Leviathan, which you have formed to play in it. These all took look to you to give them their food in due season. When you give it to them, they gather it up. When you open your hand, they are filled with good things. When you hide your face, they are dismayed. When you take away their breath, they die and return to dust. When you send forth your spirit, they are created, and you renew the face of the ground. May the glory of the Lord endure forever. May the Lord rejoice in his works, who looks on earth and it trembles, who touches the mountains and they smoke. I will sing to the Lord as long as I live. I will sing praises to my God while I have been. May my meditation be pleasing to him, for I rejoice in the Lord. Let sinners be consumed from the earth, and let the wicked be no more. Bless the Lord, O my soul. Praise the Lord. That ends the reading of our God's word. Let us ask his blessing on our time in it. Our most gracious Lord, our hearts are prone to wander. Our minds are slow to understand. We are not by nature people of your word. 
And so we ask that you would have mercy on us, compassion, that you would be among us and that you would speak to our hearts, that you would illumine our minds, and that you would give us ears to hear your most holy truth, we pray. Amen. You may be seated. I think most people appreciate nature. Maybe not all, but it seems like most people enjoy looking at the mountains or the ocean. I think most of us are impressed with the waves crashing on the shore or silenced by freshly fallen snow. I think we know how to find wonder and awe looking at a leaf and its intricacy and its beauty or how the stars at, on a clear night can at the same time make us feel both small and yet somehow connected to the universe. But sometimes, and maybe often, it seems like our appreciation of, of nature is little more than really just desiring a break from the hustle and the bustle, the city, the crowds, the dirt, the noise, and the chaos of living in a busy place. What sometimes we appreciate is just the change. Sometimes what we mean when we say we love nature is simply that we love its beauty, its peace, its aesthetics, and how it makes us feel, but, but nothing more than that. But when the Bible speaks about the glory of nature, that is not what it means. At least it's not all that it means. In fact, the Bible's preferred term is, is not nature, but creation. And there's a reason for that. Because the term creation, right, doesn't just refer to what is, but how it started. But even that can go a few different directions. Um, I was reading C.S. Lewis this week, and he points out that how when most uh, religions talk about creation, uh, it, it's like they're asking, how did the story start? Uh, they're asking what happened in the opening scene, who was present, uh, what was the dialogue spoken, and so on. What they're not asking is how did the story come into being? Did it write itself? And if not, who did? But those are the questions that matter. Uh, it, it, they're the more important questions, aren't they? And we understand that. Uh, uh, if you are into art and you go to a museum, you don't just marvel at the, art, the works of art. Of course you do, you, you marvel, you, you're amazed by them, you enjoy them. But you ask, who painted this? What was he thinking? What inspired her? What drove this piece of art? And certainly no one ever says, well, it just always existed. It must have painted itself. No, any, any curator of a museum who talked like that would, would quickly <laughs> be without a job. 
But oddly, when it comes to one of the greatest works of art, creation itself, that's exactly what many people do. And by doing so, they, it means never asking the more important questions. Who created it? And why was it created? You see, Psalm 104 is all about creation. Really, though, it's, it's about the God of creation and his work of both bringing the universe into existence and his carefully preserving it throughout history. But more than that, it's about why. And what we're going to see as we spend some time in this beautiful psalm this morning, it's this. Creation's purpose, the reason it exists, the reason it was made, creation's purpose is to reveal its creator so that you might learn to glorify him and to find and seek life in him. That's why creation exists. To tell you who God is so that you might glorify him and seek life in him. Not just life in this world, but eternal life. That's what we want to see as we, as we dig into the psalm this morning. The first 19 verses are all about God's work of creation. And you can even hear the days of creation being echoed. Uh, beginning as Genesis does on the, on the first three days, it records in verses 1 through 9 uh, the creation of the world that we now occupy with the animals. And you can hear those days of creation being echoed in the psalm. Light bursting forth as it did on the first day in verse 2, clothing God in splendor and majesty. And then moving on into the following verses, the heavens being stretched out like a canopy or a big tent and uh, the the ocean depths being laid like a foundation below uh, as they were on the second day of creation. And the image is that of a house or a dwelling place, that uh, God's house, a place where the creator can dwell and live with his creation. And, and, then, and then like in verses 3 and 4, you see how God is both busy at work building, but also sending out his angels here and there as he works on his masterpiece. Not just a creator, but, but a conductor of a master symphony. And he's just getting started. Up out of the depths on the third day, verse 8, he drew the mountains... And for the first time, dry land became visible. Hills and mountains and valleys and plains. Uh, variation. And yet harmony. Everything set in its place. And then he sets the shorelines as centuries, holding back the waters, protecting the dry land and those who would dwell on it. So then it's then in verse 10 that the psalmist begins to describe the occupants of creation, those for whom God has been making it. The beasts of the field and the birds of the heavens and sea creatures that play and frolic in the depths, each building their homes, each finding provision in this brilliantly designed creation. 
springs bringing water up from below, uh, the skies showering rains from above, and then hills and rivers and valleys carrying those waters throughout the land, watering here, watering there, uh, giving animals things to drink. And so plants grow and animals feed everything in its place, every detail thought out and flawlessly executed. Creation itself is the most ingenious machine we have ever seen, and yet one that doesn't need to be rewound uh, or, or plugged in or recharged. Just absolute balance, beauty, functionality, all wrapped together in one perfect gift. And then in the midst of all that, in verses 14 and 15, we find God's crowning achievement is his, he makes man in his own image. Placed in a garden which he could cultivate and harvest. But not just to labor a mindless drone working the ground. He's given wine to, to make his heart glad. He's given oil to make his face shine. He's given bread to strengthen his heart. Creation was made for man. God's gift to us. For pleasure, for provision, and for protection. Look at verses... Um, 20 through 23, because this that last aspect of protection comes out in the way God has ordered his creation. He set it up so that when man goes to bed, the predators come out, they, they scavenge, they prowl, they do their thing. And then as the sun comes up and man gets ready to go back to work for the day, they go into their dens and they hide for the night, I mean for the day. And the image is there's this dance going on. Every day unseen, unnoticed, but without it, everything would come to a crashing halt. The sun rises, the sun sets, the moon comes out and it hides again. The rains come and plants grow. Animals reproduce, man hunts. A million separate parts, unwittingly working together in perfect harmony and balance, mirroring God's perfectly ordered personality to his creation. Verse 28 shows us that our very lives depend upon the openness of his hand as he fills us with all good things. Because when he hides his face, verse 29, we are dismayed. When he takes away our breath, we die. We return to dust like we saw last week. And so whether we know it or not, whether we accept it or not, whether we admit it or not, every day, every breath is entirely dependent on the Creator. In him we truly live and we move and we have our being. And theologians call that providence. The invisible hand of God keeping chaos from wreaking absolute havoc on us. The psalmist has another word. 
It's wisdom. Verse 24, O Lord, how manifold are your works. In wisdom you have made them all. Wisdom is that unique ability to unite intelligence in real life. And to bring into that order and balance and peace. And it's the very wisdom of God that sustains us each and every day. But as is often the case, wisdom can easily be lost on some. Many are blind to the kindness that they are being shown. Or they take it for granted. Or worse, they actually think they are the source of their blessings. And this gets at the purpose of creation and the purpose of God's wisdom and providence. Creation's purpose is to reveal its creator. We see that in Psalm 19, right? The, the heavens declare the glory of God and the sky above proclaims his handiwork. We see it in Romans. His invisible attributes, his eternal power, his divine nature. I have been clearly perceived ever since the creation of the world in the things that have been made. Creation, yes, is meant to be enjoyed, but that's not all that it's meant for. Because, because gifts are always a reflection of the giver. We are about to uh, probably in the next eight days or so have a lot of gifts given and received. But if you ever prize the gift over the one who gives it, there's something deeply broken in you. If you, if you prize the gift over the giver, you've missed the entire point. Because gifts are always a reflection of the love of the one who gave it. And so the gift itself is secondary. It's but a small emblem, token, or reflection. And the love itself is really the gift. It's the true gift. In other words, we were always meant to ask more than how did it begin because creation was meant to stir within us wonder that would make us ask how did it come into being, not just when. We're asked how, who made it, why did he make it? And yet, shockingly, that is what is missing in nearly every creation narrative in all other religions and beliefs. Most creation accounts simply ask, what happened in Act 1, Scene 1? Who was there? What did they say? In fact, in Greek mythology, creation exists first and brings forth the gods. Creation creates the gods, not the gods' creation. Perhaps the only creation account in antiquity that begins with God, a single God who brings forth creation, was promoted by one of the pharaohs in Egypt, uh, Amenhotep IV, also known as Akhenaten. He broke with all his predecessors. And because of that, he was seen as a heretic for doing so. 
Perhaps it's no surprise that he came into power shortly after Moses had led Israel out of Egypt and he had witnessed the power of Moses' God. But even today in our supposedly scientific age, accounts of creation are no different than ancient mythologies. They begin with creation, the universe, and out of that comes all life. And the questions of where did it come from and who made it simply aren't allowed. Could you imagine any of us standing in a museum looking at a masterpiece asking who painted it and what drove him and being told that such questions were not only forbidden, they were irrational and ridiculous. And yet we live in a mass conspiracy forbidding anyone to ask the most obvious of questions. In a world where everyone pretends that those are irrational, unscientific, and unacceptable. But to, to live that way takes work. To look at a masterpiece and convince yourself that it just happened or always existed, that requires immense amounts of effort. The suspension of reason and the silencing of curiosity, the very curiosity it's meant to evoke. The more amazing the creation, the harder it is to silence such questions. And yet that's what we have been doing since the most ancient of times. And we have to ask, what could possibly drive people to do such a thing? What could lead intelligent people to refuse to simply ask, who wrote the story, how did we get here, and what does it all mean? And I think we know the answer. When, when you've drawn something, and everyone talks about how good someone else's drawing is, what's your natural response? We say things like, oh, I think it's ugly. Anyone could have done that. Don't give them attention, give me attention. When someone else gets the praise and the adoration that we crave, we feel the need to discredit, to knock down, and to humble whomever we see as competition. Yes, it's petty, and yes, it's juvenile, but I really have a hard time believing I'm the only one who knows that temptation. And so when we look at creation, and we instinctively marvel, and we stand in awe and wonder, and we recognize brilliance, and we recognize love, and we recognize wisdom, and we recognize justice, we know that the appropriate response would be adoration, and praise, and worship. The very things we crave for ourselves, and we don't want to give it to another. And so we say stuff like, I think it's ugly. I, anybody could do that, or no one did it. It just is. We try to silence creation even, even by worshiping it. Nature worship is just another way of silencing its creator. I don't need anyone to have made it. I love it. Again, uh, C.S. Lewis, as I was reading him this week, he, he says, 
the worship of nature is like being so impressed with the mailman's uniform that you refuse to take the letter he's holding for you. It might be a great uniform, but his job is to bring you something. Creation is glorious, but its job is to show us its creator. But we don't always want to face our creator. We don't always want to acknowledge him. We don't want to bow to him. We don't want to worship him. And that in and of itself is why we prefer the term nature to creation. Because creation presumes a creator behind it. And that's what we don't want to wrestle with because we don't want to bow, surrender, worship, and adore the one who made it. So we hear verses like uh, Psalm 139.14. I'm fearfully and wonderfully made and we think that it points to how great we are. Yeah, I am wonderful. But the word made is the key word. Someone made us. And so when we read the entire verse, it says this, I praise you, God, for I am fearfully and wonderfully made. Wonderful are your works, and my soul knows it well. The purpose of creation is to bring glory to its creator. It's meant to lead us to the feet of the one true God. Isaiah puts it this way. For thus says the Lord God who made the heavens, for he is God who formed the earth and made it. He established it and he did not create it empty. He formed it to be inhabited. I am the Lord. There is no other. Creation is about God. It's about his glory. Creation drives a stake through the heart of that heresy that claims our God is just one among many or unnecessary for the universe. Creation all around us is testifying to its creator so that we might praise him, that we might give thanks to him. That's the purpose it serves. And so in Psalm 104, we see the six days of creation and how they reveal their creator and his glory and his splendor and call us to praise him. But we're left asking, what about the seventh day? Weren't there seven days in creation? As you read through Psalm 104, it's easy to hear the first six echoed, clearly reflected. But what about the seventh well, it's important to remember that the seventh day in Genesis 2 was about two things. The first was rest, rest and worship. God set the last day of creation aside for the worship of his creator. And that's where our psalm begins and ends, isn't it? With praise. Verse 1 and verses 31 through 35, all about praising the creator. That's the seventh day. It's meant to be read on the Sabbath day and, and, so that it might stir wonder in our hearts and awe within us and lead us to the feet of God and praise Him. Creation is always meant to lead to worship on the seventh day. 
That's where the first six days were always headed. But there was a second purpose to the seventh day. At the last day of the week, it was also meant to, to cast our gaze forward through all time to the very last day of history. To remind us that everything was headed somewhere, that, that creation wasn't the end goal, that, that there was something even more glorious awaiting us at the end, the new creation. And so perhaps it shouldn't be surprising to us then that, that this new creation is in view in our psalm. Look again at verses 29 and 30. Verse 29, when you hide your face, they are dismayed. When you take away their breath, they die and return to dust. This is what we saw last week in Psalm 103, right? That, that sin brought death and decay into the world, ugliness into beauty, and corrupted creation. But look at verse 30. When you send forth your spirit, they are created and you renew the face of the earth. This immediately follows death and decay. It's not talking about creation. It's talking about resurrection. It's talking about new life, new birth, new creation. The psalmist is likening that to Genesis 2.8, when the Spirit of God breathed the breath of life into that pile of dust, and it became a living soul. But here, what he's envisioning with that is something even more amazing. It's renewal, it's restoration, it's, it's resurrection. And so when Jesus came into this world and he lived a perfect life and he offered that life, that perfect life in our place, he was the first one to experience resurrection. The Bible tells us at that moment, he became the life-giving spirit. In other words, he earned the right to breathe the breath of new, eternal life on those who were under a sentence of death and to renew them and to give them new life, eternal life. And so on that day, that very day that he rose from the dead, later that afternoon, he went with his disciples. And do you remember what he did? He breathed on them and said, Re receive the Holy Spirit. John 20, 22. And as he breathed on them, their sins were forgiven and their souls were saved and they became new creations. That act of Jesus' life-giving spirit breathing on them and renewing them was foretold a thousand years earlier in Psalm 104. And it happens every time a sinner recognizes his creator, bows his knee, and in faith cries out for forgiveness. And that's where creation's always been driving us to the feet of our Creator, to worship and humility, to confession and to repentance and to life. The gift itself being but a reflection of the giver's love. Creation is a marvelous gift, beloved. Speaking to you, calling to you, testifying to you of your heavenly Father's love. But it's not the only creation we get to witness, not the only gift we get to witness this morning. There's another one set before us. 
in the bread and the wine of the Lord's Supper. Speaking of the bread, do you remember what Jesus said? This is my body which is given for you. This is a gift, right? Given. It's an act of love. It's a visible manifestation of his love for us. And it's given to help us on our journey while we await the day when we will be called into the new creation and we will behold with our eyes a glory that we can't even begin to imagine. But that gift too was anticipated the gift of, uh, in, in our psalm. Remember what verse 15 said? That God gave wine to gladden man's heart, bread to strengthen him. <laughs> this gift of love is, is meant to strengthen you, not physically, but spiritually, so that you would not be tempted to believe the lies of the world or to worship the creation instead of its creator or to seek your glory instead of his. And so as we come this morning to the Lord's Supper, we come rejoicing. We come bowing in reverence and in surrender. We come in worship praising our glorious God and Savior, grateful for his love for us. And so I'd like to ask uh, Pastor Isaac and the elders to come forward that we might receive this gift this morning. And please join me in prayer. Father, your creation is amazing and it drives us to wonder, to marvel, to awe of you and your works. But it is easy, so easy, to ignore the important questions and to try to even silence creation's voice by worshiping it instead of the one who made it. And so we ask that you would forgive us and that you would teach us to marvel at you and all that you have done. May we hear creation's voice and its praise of its creator. And so we bless you and we praise you and we exalt you and bow before you. May your glory endure forever, we pray. May all your works magnify you. Amen.